Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Warning, the material in The Reckoning is explicit and tough. In 1996, Cardinal George Pell was then the Archbishop of Melbourne and most Sundays he would preside over Sunday Solemn Mass. At every Mass, the choir would sing... And in the choir were boys from St Kevin's College. The Mass would start at 11 and go for about an hour. The Sunday Mass was quite a regimented affair. It was the Mass attended by dignitaries or politicians and other people. And at the end of Mass every Sunday, if the weather was fine, the choir would process out of the building, down the front steps and around the outside of the building to re-enter at a back door. Melissa Davy, the Melbourne Bureau Chief of Guardian Australia, who last year sat through the trials of George Pell month after month. Sometime in December 1996, two choir boys decided to have some fun. They were exiting the cathedral as part of the procession, and once the procession made its way outside, these two boys decided to nick off. They wanted to get away early. The boys snuck back into the cathedral and made their way down a corridor and they went through a big wooden door and found the priest and archbishop's sacristies. It's where the priest and archbishop robe and derobe before and after mass. And these rooms are off limits to the public. They're definitely off limits to choir boys. The boys were feeling mischievous, they were excited, they'd never been in this room before, there's no one around, and they go inside and they start looking around, and they find a little cupboard with wine inside of it, sacramental wine, and they decide to take some drinks. And it's then they notice that Pell had planted himself in the doorway. Pell tells the boys they're in a lot of trouble, and... He begins walking over to one of the boys. The boy says, can you let us go? We haven't done anything wrong. Pell pushes him to the ground and he's been manoeuvring underneath his robes and he pulls out his penis. George Pell was charged with four counts of child sex abuse for what happened in the next few minutes in that room, and a fifth count for grabbing one of the choir boys by the balls a few weeks later. I'm David Marr, and this is The Reckoning, and the time has come to talk about the trial of George Pell, indeed, the trials of George Pell. In an ordinary Melbourne courtroom last year, he faced two trials. Nothing, not a word was reported to the public. All reporting was suppressed. The court wasn't closed. This was not happening in secret. You could come and go. You could watch the proceedings. And people did. Though the room was very rarely crowded, despite the fact of this extraordinary sight 
a cardinal being tried on these squalid charges. The first trial, after many, many weeks, ended with the jury unable to reach a verdict. The question then was whether the prosecution would call for a second trial, for the whole thing to be done again. The decision was taken, yes, it would begin again. There would be a second prosecution of Pell. That began last November, and it lasted another six gruelling weeks. We can now tell the story for the first time of those trials. Presiding over the case was Chief Justice Peter Kidd, a thorough, very cerebral and thoughtful judge. When he was a lawyer, he prosecuted international war crime trials. Kidd opens the trial by giving the jurors some preliminary directions, including that this is a trial of the actions of Pell, not the actions or failures of the Catholic Church. Once the judge has finished his directions, the case begins with the prosecutor, Mark Gibson, outlining the case against Pell. Gibson really methodically goes through what happened and the lead up to the abuse. He then talks about the two choir boys who had obtained a scholarship to St. Kevin's College because they were singers in the choir. And he describes how they just turned 13 and it was after 11 a.m. on one of these Sunday solemn masses at St. Patrick's when they decide to have some fun. So it becomes pretty clear that Gibson's style is very much just sticking to the facts and going through things very chronologically. He does this in a very kind of calm manner. And it's a big contrast to the way that Pell's defence barrister, Robert Richter, approaches his arguments. So Gibson's opening address took about a day and Richter always took longer than Gibson in the opening address and in the closing address. He's quite a theatrical, flamboyant man. He kind of jumps all over the place. You know, you think of this very considered argument from the prosecution and then Richter gets up. He starts saying, for example, (laughs) the moment he gets up that there is an elephant in the room. That's what he says to the jurors as he stands up to address them in the opening statement. He said there's an elephant in the room and he wants to clear the air. And he raises that song by Tim Minchin that went viral called Come Back Cardinal Pell. I hear that you've been poorly. I am sorry that you're feeling blue. And that's when there was pressure on Pell to return to Australia from Rome to give evidence before the Royal Commission. And Richter goes into the fact that he knows that the Catholic Church has been the subject of controversy and he knows that a lot has been said in the media about Pell and his approach to addressing child sexual abuse. But he tells them that this is the trial of Cardinal George Pell himself who is alleged to have committed terrible crimes against children. And it is these allegations they're about to consider. His approach was really to not shy away from the allegations. He really wanted to put them front and centre, kind of as a way to show how outrageous they were, 
how ludicrous they were. He often used the term oral rape, that he orally raped a little boy, really kind of blatant language. And he did that to kind of highlight, I think, how ridiculous these allegations were. Mel, how do we know the victim's story? The complainant gave evidence via a video that was played to the courtroom and the court was sealed to the public, including journalists, during his evidence, which is not unusual. It's standard for victims of sexual assault is to protect them from embarrassment or pressure. And it meant that we couldn't bear witness to the most important evidence in the case. But his evidence was quoted quite heavily throughout the trial, and that's how we got to know some of his story and his experience, and what was read out to the court was very, very powerful. Were you able also to gauge what kind of witness he was? We saw from the the Child Abuse Royal Commission that many victims of abuse do turn to drugs and crime and have a really difficult life because of what they've been through. And really, unfortunately, that can sometimes affect their believability and their reliability, even though they went through something awful and they're telling the truth. This complainant was different in the way he came across. I definitely spoke to people who were there to witness the evidence. All of them said that he comes across as an eloquent, believable reliable, honest witness. And even though it shouldn't, obviously the way you come across does have an impact on jurors. What's the complainant's evidence of what happened? The complainant related the same story that Gibson had set up earlier, that he'd broken away from the procession with his friend and that they'd snuck back into the church found the priest's sacristy, and in his evidence, he told the court, we were excited, feeling mischievous. I'd never been in this room before. They start looking around, having a bit of fun, and they find some sacramental wine. They each start taking some drinks of the wine, and it's then that they notice Pell planted in the doorway. The complainant said, he planted himself in the doorway and said something like, what are you doing here? Or you're in trouble. There was this moment where we all just sort of froze. And then he undid his trousers or his belt, like he started moving underneath his robes. He pulled the other boy aside and then he pulled out his penis and then he grabbed the other boy's head. I could see his head being lowered towards his genitals. And then the boy sort of started squirming. He was struggling. He was sort of crouched and sort of flailing around. Archbishop Pell was standing and he had the boy crouched in front of him. I was no more than a couple of metres away. His head was being controlled and it was down near Archbishop Pell's genitals. The boy said, can you let us go? We didn't do anything before his head was pushed down. And then he turned to me and he put his penis in my mouth. Archbishop Pell was standing, he was erect, and he pushed it into my mouth. He pushed it into my mouth. He instructed me to undo my pants and take off my pants, and I did that. Then he started touching my genitals, masturbating or trying to do something with my genitals. 
my penis and my testicles, and he was touching himself with his hands. I put my clothes back on, corrected myself. My pants had been dropped. We didn't yell. It just felt like an anomaly. It was so foreign and I was in shock. I just didn't tell anyone. I was proud to be at that school. My parents were going through a divorce at the time. I didn't want to jeopardise anything to do with my education. It meant so much to me and my family. So I refrained from telling anyone. I was young and I didn't really know what had happened to me. I didn't know what it was or if it was normal. And what would I do if I went forward and said such a thing about an archbishop? Something I've carried with me the whole of my life and coming forward took courage much later on. Did the accuser talk about it over the years? He didn't. He didn't speak about it until he got drunk at his grandmother's 80th birthday party as an adult. And his sister was the designated driver. They were driving home, drunk and in the back of the car. The accuser said something to his brother who was sitting next to him in the car, you don't know what he did to me. It was fucking Cardinal George Pell. Now, none of this came out in the court case. This was all in the committal hearing. But that was the first time he told anyone about it. What happened to the other boy? The other boy died when he was in his early 30s. In 2014, he died of a heroin overdose. And he never made any allegations of abuse. In fact, he denied being abused, didn't he? He was asked by his mother, were you ever abused? And he told her that he wasn't. Because his life had gone off the rails. Yes, he was addicted to drugs. He had a really troubled life. The surviving boy, the complainant, was cross-examined by the defence. What was their line of attack? It became clear through listening to the prosecutors and the defence that the line of attack was that this was an invention, a product of fantasy, and maybe over the years he'd come to believe his own fantastic invention. That was something that was repeated throughout by Pell's defence team. What, if any, attack did they make on the believability of that story of the complainant? They attacked the believability from every angle. First, by saying that it was too crowded in the church for any of this to have happened. Also, by looking at Pell's movements, they said that he would often stay behind on the steps of the church as he processed outside of the church and spend several minutes talking to parishioners and dignitaries and that he wouldn't have had time to offend. They also said that if Pell really wanted to offend, he would have taken the boys to his office. He had an office with a lock lockable door. And Richter said, well, why wouldn't he take them to his office where he could lock the door and do what he wanted with them? Pell opted not to go into the witness box, but the jury did hear him. 
The jurors were played a video of Pell being interviewed by two detectives in Rome, and the video was recorded on the 19th of October 2016, and it was recorded in a hotel conference room in Rome. There were two detectives, and the questioning was led by Detective Sergeant Chris Reed. They sit down, and the video shows them Pell and his lawyer on one side of the table and the detectives on the other. The detectives open their interview, and Reed says, I understand there's a statement you want to read. Like Pell has a statement that he's prepared that he wants to get out of the way before he's interrogated by these detectives. And he kind of sets it up that, you know, he, he doesn't have to be there. He volunteered. And he says that as far as he understands, the allegations are vague. They're imprecisely defined. He tells the detectives that the most rudimentary of interviews of staff at the time of the allegations of choir boys and of altar servers would show that the allegations are fundamentally improbable, most certainly false, and then he invites the detectives to tell him who they've spoken to. And then he says to the detectives, he's happy to provide them with a list of people they should talk to. And he finishes by saying, I would earnestly hope that this is done before any decision is made whether to lay charges because immeasurable damage will be done to me and the church by the mere laying of charges, which on proper examination will be found to be untrue. Damage to the church. And damage to him. And he expected two detectives from the Victorian police force on the other side of the world should stay their hand because what they do might damage the church. And also listen to Pell say to them that he was relying on their integrity and not to make a case against him. He was raising doubts already about the thoroughness and the motivation for the police investigation, or, or that's certainly how it came across. How long is that interview? It goes for about 45 minutes. And, you know, after Pell reads out this long statement that he's prepared with the help of a lawyer, the detective, Chris Reed, just kind of goes, Thanks, I appreciate that. And then he moves into the questioning. <laughs> and this is where it gets really interesting because Detective Reed keeps trying to explain to Pell what the allegations are. So Pell has a fair idea. He's been given a heads up and, and Reed's trying to go into the allegations a bit further. And Pell just keeps interrupting, um, saying, you know, well, hang on a second, this is meant to ha have happened after Sunday Solemn Mass. And the detective's like, yes, after Mass. And then he continues on saying, you know, two boys broke away and um, were poking around the priest's sacristy. And Pell goes, well, that's an unfortunate term, but what were they poking? What do you mean they were poking around? And then Reed goes, well, I take it to mean they were looking. They were walking along, looking around. And then Pell says to the detectives, go on. He gives them permission to go on. And then he goes, and this is after mass. And... Reed says, yes, it was after mass. And Reed says to him, you've moved your robes to one side and exposed your penis. And again, Pell interjects and he goes, oh, stop it. What an absolute load of disgraceful rubbish. Completely false. Madness. And then Reed continues, it's alleged you stepped forward and grabbed the boy by the head and forced his head onto your penis. Pell interjects again, completely false. And at that point, 
The detective says to him, you don't have to comment at this stage. I can continue on. And Pell says to him, please do. And so Reed goes, well, the boys were terrified at this stage. And again, Pell interrupts and he goes, this is in the sacristy at the cathedral after Sunday mass. And Reed says yet again, yes. And then Pell goes, well, need I say any more? What a load of garbage and falsehood and deranged falsehood. My master of ceremonies will be able to say he was always with me after ceremonies. And then the detective goes into the fifth allegation because, of course, the complainant said that about a month later, again after Sunday Mass, he was walking through a church corridor at St. Patrick's Cathedral and he passed Pell and Pell pushed him against the wall and grabbed him really hard on the genitals through his choir robes. And he said that attack was all over in a matter of seconds. And so the detective tells Pell this. And um, again, Pell says, you know, is this after mass? And the detective says, yes. And Pell says, well, that's good for me because it makes it even more fantastic and impossible. And the interview ends with the detective saying, do you have anything else to say in answer to any possible charge? Because remember, at this point, charges haven't been laid. And Pell just says, that I'm certainly not guilty. I believe on many, many details I've been able to prove that the charges are false and I believe that with more work and information we'll be able to give even further information to enhance the strength of those denials. So after all of the witnesses have been heard, there are closing addresses by the defence and the prosecution. Now, who goes first? Prosecution always goes first. And once again, Mark Gibson took the jury step by step through what is alleged to have happened after Sunday Solemn Mass in 1996. And he also really beautifully directly refers to evidence given by various witnesses to show that contrary to Richter's claims that it's impossible and improbable, actually it kind of fits. Some people did say that the choir boys might have been able to sneak away, that the procession kind of disintegrated a little bit once it got outside, that choir boys were keen to get home and get away, and sometimes doors were unlocked and maybe it was feasible that someone could re-enter the church without a swipe card. And so he just really, really calmly went through step by step the evidence and where it fit. By this point, Gibson is almost boring He's just so calm, repetitive, and, you know, bearing in mind by this point, I've heard this trial three times, really, between the committal, the first trial, and then the retrial. So, you know, maybe I'm judging it a little bit harshly, but it was just very simple to follow. While it's impossible to ever guess what a juror is thinking, from the perspective of myself listening to it, it's this simplicity that made Gibson's closing address so effective and so compelling. He didn't need to exaggerate detail or fill it with anything theatrical. He just told it like it was step by step. And then, then you have Richter. So Gibson took about a day to close his arguments. Richter always took much longer. He took about two days to close. He does this thing where usually... Usually the lawyers face the judge and the jurors sit to the right-hand side and the lawyers will kind of 
talk to the judge and the jury and kind of turn to their right and face the jury. Richter picks up his notes and he walks around to the head of the bar table and he tells the jurors he's going to address them directly, head on, and that's how he delivers his closing. His address makes references to pop culture, to US crime shows. He references the Queen at one point, saying that just like the Queen is never left alone when she's in her robes, when she's in her important um, dress, that she's never left on her own, and it's a similar situation with, with George Pell. He describes Pell as the Darth Vader of the Catholic Church, that because he's so powerful and prominent that he's kind of been made a scapegoat for the church's failings. And he tells the jurors, but this is not what this trial is about. It is not about the failures of the Catholic Church, and they are to put that out of their mind when considering their verdict. Do you think Richter knows who Darth Vader is? I mean, that's, that's to help his client? This is the thing. <sighs> You know, I think Richter has a big reputation. He is probably the most well-known defence barrister in Melbourne, and there is no doubt he is good. He is forensic. He digs up a lot of detail, and he is a formidable cross-examiner. But his approach can be seen as kind of condescending, a little bit jarring, hard to follow, over the top, and while it might make for an interesting courtroom scene, it doesn't necessarily wash with the jury. There was another moment where he said to the jurors, you can't change your mind. If you make this verdict and you wake up tomorrow and you decide you've made a mistake, you can't come back and say, sorry, I want to reconsider. So he put that on them and, and, Justice Kidd was really good. He, he called Richter out on that and he said, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be a burden of the jury to worry about what happens next. Their task is solely to be the judges in this case and to consider the evidence before them. So Richter would cross the line and sometimes I thought it was deliberate because he is an experienced barrister. So he knows where the line is and sometimes I got the impression that he would rather say something that crossed that line and be reprimanded for it so he could at least put the thought into the juror's head rather than not say it at all. So Richter has this very kind of convoluted closing address and then after about a day of his closing, he says that he wants to present a PowerPoint presentation to the jurors and he didn't do this in the first trial and I know I said that the evidence was largely the same and the approach was largely the same between the first trial and the retrial, but this PowerPoint was new and it was strange because it was not a well-put-together PowerPoint. It kind of reminded me of those terrible slapdash uni presentations where you put it together at the last minute overnight and he did the thing you're not supposed to do in a PowerPoint presentation and he put exactly on the slide what he then repeated to the jurors. And he then said he is going to argue against Pell's guilt on 12 different points. And on this PowerPoint presentation, he went through all 12 points. And there was this moment just before there was an adjournment for a break where he flashes this slide on the screen and it just says, 
only a madman would abuse two boys at once after Sunday solemn mass. And that's just left on the screen as the jurors are taken back to their jury room for their break. It was just, I mean, there is an argument that people should increasingly use these technologies in court, but I've never seen it done and I've never seen it done like this. But not content with a PowerPoint presentation, Richter then had this audio-visual kind of animation that he wanted to screen, and that is when Gibson got up and said, yeah, I don't know about this. And the jury was sent out and there was a debate had about whether this animation was allowed. Now, we never saw the animation because the judge ruled that the jurors might think it's evidence. Like by watching something on a screen, they might think that it's fact. And by the time the closing address happens, you're not allowed to introduce new evidence. So kid said, no, you can't, you can't have your animation. So the jury was sent out to consider its verdict. How long did it take them to reach their decision? After about three and a half, almost four days, we got word that the jury had reached a verdict. And we're all filling the corridors at this point, waiting outside the courtroom, because things can happen very quickly once a verdict is delivered. And We didn't want to risk missing it. So we were just waiting for the lawyers for each party to start filing in. And it was quite a shock that a verdict had been reached so quickly because in the first trial, the jurors deliberated for almost a week and it ended up being a hung verdict. And when they returned to the courtroom, they were really distressed. Like you could tell the weight of not being able to reach a verdict and I'm sure the debate that had been going on behind closed doors had really taken a toll. Five of the jurors were in tears and Kid actually had to reassure them that he knew that they'd worked really hard and tried their best and he sent them on their way, declared a mistrial and excused them from doing jury duty for a decade. So the fact that we had a verdict after just three and a half days was exciting Um, we were thinking that it would likely be a hung jury again. And the jury, when they walked in for the retrial, were really calm, um, quite hard to read, really. There were eight men and four women, whereas in the first trial, it was a 50-50 split. So there were those differences. And it just was strange to think that the first jury had grappled so much with the weight of this task. And this jury had come to a decision fairly quickly for a trial of this length and of this complexity and seemed, from what I observed, quite comfortable in their decision. And so we walk in and we take our seats and the jury comes in, the first charge is read out and when the foreman said, the finding was guilty. I can't even describe what that was like. There was a mix of just shock and also immediately start thinking, well, if he's guilty of this one, what about the next one? Because they read out each charge one by one and there were five charges and again and again it was a finding of guilt for all five of them. The room was deathly silent. 
No one said a word. Pell kind of, as always, was bowed over, sitting in the dock, looking ahead, kind of nodding his head ever so slightly as the verdict was handed down. And Richter, flamboyant and theatrical, when he got up to respond. It was like he'd lost his voice. He could barely speak above a whisper. And suddenly he found himself having to talk about bail requirements and sentencing. And the room, all I can say is is that it was still. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.